0: Well, hey, we are in the series on the book of Acts right now the book of Acts. If, if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to go back and check out that message on our app or on the website so you can get caught up. Uh, we're going to be kind of sequentially going through the book of Acts in six parts to try and understand better and better who we are as the church. Uh, I think there's been a lot of speculation on the church in the past few years and really the best way for us to understand what the church was always meant to be is to look at it in its formation as it begins, the way that it was created, and the way that we were called to go forward. And so the book of Acts tells that story. It's a a sequel to the Gospels, the Gospel messages. Uh, We just did a series on the Gospels called The Way of Jesus, and in the Gospels, we learn all about the teachings of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, who he is, what he does for us, and all that kind of thing. And Jesus is establishing the framework for the church in the Gospels as he teaches and, and brings his disciples along in the work of ministry with him. And then the book of Acts takes us into the early formation of the church. Uh, It was written by Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke. It is literally the sequel to his gospel. Uh, around sixty-two to sixty-three AD is when he wrote it. Uh, the first sixteen chapters are all firsthand accounts that Luke gathered from the Apostle Paul and the other disciples who were living in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, uh, in chapter seventeen, Luke encounters Paul, and then he's with Paul for the rest of the events of Acts. So the rest of Acts is firsthand accounts, and then the first half is Paul is Luke uh, gathering firsthand accounts from the disciples. That's that's just where it comes from, and last. Last week we did chapters 1 and 2 and we learned all about the beginning of the birth of the church the Gospels tell us that Jesus defeated the grave and was resurrected and continued to teach and spend time with his followers for 40 days and then he ascended into heaven his followers about 120 people at the time uh, they did exactly as he asked and they just waited in Jerusalem for an undetermined period of timing for the Holy Spirit to come. 10 days later, on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit came down from heaven in the form of tongues of fire and filled the followers of Jesus. And in one day, the church grew from 120 to 3000. Acts chapter two ends with the church living and serving and worshiping as a community with all things in common. They went to church together. They ate together. They celebrated what God was doing together. They met each other's needs together. They shared the message of Jesus together. They were doing it all together. It is this great celebration of the beginning of the church at the end of Acts chapter two. And it's a message to us that we have inherited the work that they began and carry it on today. We're studying this book of Acts as a means of understanding where we, the church, began and to know where we, the church, are going next. Today we're picking right up uh, in chapter 3 of Acts, and I'm going to do a section of Acts that is between chapter 3 and chapter 8. And so we've got a lot of ground to cover today, a big chunk of story to cover today. And this is a crucial piece of the story because we finish up in chapter 2 with this real high note. We have the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes and brings a new life into the people and into the church. The church is growing and the church is operating in community and we just really see the church at its very best and who we can really be at the end of Acts chapter 2. And Acts chapter 3 brings us into a section about the persecution of the church. And in this section, interspersed throughout, it kind of bounces from a story of God doing amazing works and the church growing and the church discovering itself into a moment of persecution and opposition and the world coming up against the church. And really, in Acts chapter 3 is where we begin to see it happen. The church becoming what we know today. A beautiful mixture of wins and losses. A beautiful combination of the Holy Spirit moving in the world opposing. And so that's the section that we're reading today. I'm going to go through this section and then we'll take a look at what we can learn about it. I'm excited to get into it. Beginning in Acts chapter 3, it opens on Peter and John, the disciples of Jesus, heading to the temple together to pray. Here we go. Verse 2. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. And Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. This is kind of a callback to Jesus and Bartimaeus in the city of Jericho. Jesus sees somebody that nobody else saw. Everybody would just kind of walk past this guy every day and maybe toss a coin or two into his hat on their way in to pray. Peter and John did something different. They stopped and it says that they stared straight at him. It says that intentionally. It's a way for us to understand our role in the church. We are called to see people that are often unseen. Peter and John, they see him and they say, look at us. And he gives them his attention. And then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. This moment of serving this man that everybody else ignored got the attention of everyone going in. And that might be because the guy was jumping all over like a crazy man. Everybody's now paying attention uh, that was in this court to pray. And Peter and John see this opportunity where there has been an act of service that has resulted in the attention of the people around them. And they use this opportunity to share the gospel. Now, this is a common theme all throughout the book of Acts. The disciples were constantly, always aware of every opportunity to share the gospel. And they used each and every one of these moments. We have opportunities to share our faith or to invite people to church all the time. But often we just aren't trained to notice them. Our anxieties, our fears, our our question marks, our insecurities about ourselves have taught us to just move on past those moments in our daily lives. And if we wanna get back to being the church as we were always intended to be the church, we've gotta learn to see these moments to have bold faith as the disciples saw them. Peter and John preached the gospel in this space and people respond to it. But there where they are preaching, At the temple are the exact same Pharisees and leaders and teachers of the law that had Jesus crucified. The same men that convinced the guards to go find him, that convinced the government to arrest him, that convinced Pilate to crucify him, are standing there listening to his followers declare his name. They respond like this in Acts chapter 4. Oh, this is the response of Peter and John after those Pharisees tried to convince them to stop using empty threats and words. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, I relate to that, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they performed a notable sign. and We can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. It says that this this conference of leaders included the high priest and the people who were named in the trial of Jesus. It ends this way, verse 21. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. This is one of my favorite things about this passage, that the most miraculous thing in this whole thing was that this guy was over 40. This dude was knocking on death's door, and they still healed. Homeboy could have got an irreversible knee injury just trying to run to the buffet line. All that jumping was a real risk at his age, but he was healed, and he was over 40 years old. Wow, God is good. God is moving and it's unmistakable. So these guys are released. Peter and John are released back to the people and they're given this strict warning. Don't keep telling everybody about Jesus or else. And it says that they tell the other believers what had happened. They went and shared about this moment with them and they all prayed together that God would continue to give them opportunities to move in bold faith. And as they prayed, it says the walls began to shake with power. The chapter finishes like this. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had a need. This is a reiteration, a revisiting of Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 46. The writer is letting us know that as the church was growing immediately after Pentecost, it continues to grow in the same way right here. We begin to see that the church is not just growing in word, but it is growing in action. And this is a crucial inclusion to the story because it's important for us even today, 2,000 years later, to have this in our minds, to understand that a church, if it is only growing in word, if it is only growing numerically, if it is only growing in position or prominence, but it is not growing in its action, in its impact in the community, in its impact in people's lives, if the neighborhoods around the church are not being changed as the church grows, then the church isn't growing in the right way. We don't just grow in word, we grow in action. Acts chapter five drives this point home and I'll I'll come back to it, but it opens with this story of Ananias and Sapphira, uh, a lovely couple in the church. They pretended to give all that they had to God, but they really kept a bunch for themselves. Peter calls them out on it and they drop dead at his feet. It's a great story. (laughs) It's an encouraging word to read before we go into our legacy offering this fall. And so we'll come back and do a whole series on it in November. (laughs) The apostles keep preaching the word despite constant resistance from the religious leaders in the city. A couple of them are even arrested, but their first night in jail, an angel releases them. And when they get out, they don't go hide or find it. They're they're let out of jail. Just imagine this. These guys are let out of jail by an angel. I'm just thinking that angel wants me in a different state. That angel wants me in a white Bronco flying down Interstate 26. That's not what they did. They go directly outside the jail and stand there and begin preaching the gospel. The Pharisees wake up and they come outside and these guys who they arrested and threw in jail the night before are now just standing outside the jail preaching the gospel to everybody who would listen. There's a crowd there listening and receiving the gospel. And the Pharisees are furious when they see this. But they decided instead of killing them that they would just wait to see what happens because a wise one among their numbers told them this. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you Leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. So they just kept preaching the word. Church kept growing. And in chapter six, we see a big shift in the church. It's one of the crucial moments in the formation of who we are. So far, it's been the disciples doing the work of the church. The people have been living in community and caring for one another that way. But there's, there's been a, a gap between the leadership and the people of the church. And it's not working anymore. In these days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to the prayer and the ministry of the word. People were falling through the cracks because too few people were doing the work of the church. There was just a small handful of people doing all the work of the church, but God had called those people to teaching and preaching and advancing the movement of the church. And these other folks, these men that they were about to find, were the ones who were gifted in care and were gifted to see people, to make sure that every gap was closed. And so this is where we see the church shift from being just about what the pastor could do to being about what the church could do. It's a big moment for the church because now we can see the real growth happening. This proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Parmesan cheese, Nicholas from Antioch. There's all these cool names, and then there's just Nicholas, you know. Sorry, fella. From Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And it's interesting because there were these two groups of people who were kind of uh, at odds with one another. And they were all for a long time. It's the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. And this is just Jews who were born Greek and became Jews. And then there's Jews who were born Jewish in, in Judea. And these groups were always at odds. We see it throughout the epistles and in Paul's teachings. We know it was a problem a lot in the early church and Of the men who were called to serve, they had both men, they had men from both of these groups called to serve, to bring them together and unify the church. And here's what it says So the word of God spread. Every single time we see the church begin to expand in community and in service every time they get something right, every time we see something that we should be paying attention to today, that we should be emulating as the church today, this is the refrain all throughout the book of Acts. And so the word of God spread. And it says that more and more people, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly that it was growing. And it was growing because they were operating the way they were designed to operate. And a large number of priests became obedient to faith. The priests that it's talking about here are the Jewish priests who had been opposing them. So many of them are starting to believe in Jesus that it's worth mentioning here in Acts chapter 6. Now, one of these deacons, Stephen, the one who had Uh, descriptors next to his name. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and full of faith. Stephen is the focus for the rest of this chapter and for chapter 7, because not all of the priests and Pharisees and religious leaders believed. In fact, as the church is growing in power and in prominence here in Acts 6, so is the opposition to it. That's another theme that we'll see through this section. That as the church grows, the enemy's opposition also grows alongside. Stephen is singled out. He's arrested. He's put on trial just for doing the work of Jesus. He stands up on trial before the Pharisees and declares the message of the truth of Jesus. These Pharisees have been learning the, the scriptures from the time that they were small children nobody has had more education on the Holy Scriptures than these men. And yet Stephen stands up before them and preaches this incredible sermon that talks to them. He's like, listen, have you ever heard of a guy called Abraham? Let me me tell you for a second about Abraham. Let me talk to you about Moses. And he walks through these monumental figures of the faith until he gets to Jesus. And he walks them through their own law, their own teachings, their own scriptures to show them how Jesus was always a part of it. It's this beautiful passage. And at the end of it, it says, now when they heard these things, this is the Pharisees. They were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They grabbed him, dragged him outside the city, and they stoned him. That is to say that they killed him by throwing rocks at him until he died. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he out, He cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep in all of Paul's writings and writings associated with Paul, like this one. Often, we see the term, they fell asleep, when it talks about somebody dying who was a follower of Christ. And that is because Paul's faith in the resurrection was so confident and so strong that he considered a man like Stephen to simply be sleeping until Christ called him to wake up again. Verse eight, or chapter eight, verse one, says Saul approved of his execution. We'll come back to that next week. Stephen is the first martyr of Jesus, but he is not the last. In fact, all of the disciples, with the exception of John the Beloved, would face similar deaths. Chapter 8 tells us that the death of Stephen led to a whole season of persecution for the church. That it empowered and emboldened the Pharisees to go and find these leaders of faith and persecute them, arrest them, or even kill them. And then it tells us stories like the encounter that Philip had with an Ethiopian. I preached on this a couple of weeks ago. God provides this encounter for the disciple Philip with a man reading from Isaiah. These guys in the chariot, Philip's on foot. I guess he runs up next to the chariot, starts talking to the guy. And the man says, what are you reading to him? And the man reveals it's a prophecy about Jesus in Isaiah 53. And he says he needs someone to explain it to him. So Philip climbs up into the chariot and he tells him all about Jesus. And the man looks at the river and said, there's water. What is standing in my way? What is stopping me from getting baptized right now? Just as many of you said just a few short weeks ago. It's this incredible story about what happens when we just take advantage of simple moments like asking the question, what are you reading? And that's chapter eight, a mixture between the the violent persecution of the church and all of the wins that the church is having simultaneously. And it's a great summation of this section of the book of Acts. Acts chapter three through eight paints a beautiful picture of how the church grows alongside opposition in spite of opposition and in the face of opposition, starting then and carrying on all the way to today. So that's where we'll stop for today. Uh, Let's take a quick look at what we can learn from this section of the book of Acts. Number one, The church was built on bold faith. When we look at these stories in the book of Acts, you can't help but notice that every time uh, there is a surge in the church, every time we see it beginning to grow again, every time we're told that more and more people are, are believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is preceded by a movement of bold faith. Peter and John begin preaching the gospel in the same place that Jesus was tried to the same people that tried him. They're warned that they'll suffer the same fate if they don't stop. But they don't stop. All throughout this section, whenever there's an opportunity, they take it. That's what we as the church are called to do as well. We are called to find opportunities to have bold faith have bold faith together as one, as the church, and have bold faith in our own daily lives as individuals, as we interact with people, to look for these opportunities and these moments. These guys weren't really working that hard to create opportunities to share the good news of Jesus. Those opportunities were finding them, and they were just being obedient to take them. Could have very easily just walked right by the man at the beautiful gate begging them, But instead, they seized this opportunity for the power of God to be seen at work within them. You're given opportunities constantly to share your faith with people. Maybe you've gotten callous to it. It's gotten hard for you to see them and identify them. Maybe fear and insecurity over the years has locked up that piece of you, your ability to see. But I believe that God is going to show you opportunities over and over and over again to either share the gospel with people or to share the gospel with them by inviting them here to church. A pastor and an author named Andy Stanley in Atlanta, Georgia, says you've got to listen for the three not cues for inviting people to church, that there are cues in conversations you have on a regular basis that should trigger a gospel response inside of you, a response to either share your personal story of faith. uh, And we're going to, if you're in practicing the way, we're going to talk more about how to do that, what that looks like in next month's practice. And so I'm excited about that. But also one of the easy easiest ways to share the gospel with somebody is to simply invite them with you to church. We provide opportunities right here for them to not only hear the gospel preached, but to experience it through the people they interact with, to be around the people of God. And so these cues that he talks about, they're called like not cues. And it's these three simple phrases we hear. I'm not okay. I was not prepared for, and I'm not from here. It'll come up in, in a conversation with a friend, sometimes even so innocuous to appear as a joke, or somebody will just mention, yeah, man, it's just been hard. Last three years have been really hard. I don't know how, if I'm taking it that well. And then make a joke and then move on into a conversation about baseball. You see these moments pop up more and more recently. I'm just having a hard time. I'm not doing well. That triggers a response for us to say, hey, I've been there. And I understand, and it does look hopeless. And you can either share your experience of encountering hope in a relationship with Jesus and how that's changed you. Or you can say, you know what, I would love for you to just come with me to church this Sunday because I believe that you can find hope in the community of God. His people are what you need around you right now. You need community, you need friends, you need people to, to lift you up when you're having these hard days. Why don't you come with me? to church. I'm, I'm, I was not prepared for my marriage to fall apart. I was not prepared for the job loss that I experienced. I was not prepared for the housing market to end up like this just when I finally got enough saved up for a down payment. I, I was not prepared for this season. Man, life throws us a lot of curveballs, doesn't it? Do you have a good community around you when that kind of stuff happens? What does that look like for you? Let me encourage you to come and get involved in the local church. Let me invite you with me to come sit with me on Sunday and receive some hope for these moments that you just weren't expecting. Maybe uh, it's the last one there where it's just the most common you're going to encounter. Hey, I'm new here. I just moved. Here. Listen. <laughs> I have a conversation 20 times a week with somebody that's moved here in the last six months, okay? I think it's half the city, as far as I can tell. Now, I don't know what happened to everybody else, if they're still here or not, but it's six months, you know? And, and these folks are coming into a brand new city, and many of you have been there. It's very difficult because you don't know anybody, and if you're here and you don't have family... You need a family. You need people to come alongside you. And this is what the church is. The church in Acts is a community of people to care for needs, to provide for one another, to be there, with, to celebrate, to mourn, to do all of those things alongside one another. Let me invite you to come with me to a space where you're going to have an encounter with relationship. Uh, Other times... You're just going to have people ask you questions about yourself or your story, your ability to pull through hard times, and have an opportunity to have bold faith. I'll never forget one of my most important conversations I've ever had in my life. Was there was this guy in my unit in the Coast Guard, and he looked like an angry pit bull. He was very scary, and he asked me to go to lunch with him one day. And this was unprecedented, and I did not know what was going to happen. I was very nervous. He came, and he, the way he did, came up to me he was like, "Red one, let's, let's go, let's go get some lunch together." And I was like me? Red wine? Is there another red wine present? (laughs) Let's, are you going to drive or should I drive or maybe we should run there? And and so we, we, we go to lunch and we sit down at this burger place and he looks at me and he says, Hey man, I'm a mess inside and you always seem so filled with joy. So can you just tell me how you do it? Can you just tell me why it is that you are the way that you are? And I was like, well, that's genetics, man. I don't know. I'm weird. Uh, (laughs) I I told him about what God had done in my life. And I said, Jacob, I remember a time not too long ago when I was so depressed I didn't want to wake up in the morning. But something changed inside of me the day I entered into a relationship with Jesus. And I believe that the same hope that lives in me can live in you. And it just begins with a conversation. And Jacob entered into a relationship with Jesus, served the church, his life was changed. We have these opportunities, and I, I don't know how many That's a good one. I don't know how many I've had that I've just run from in fear because I've lacked the boldness that these disciples had in these moments to stand up and say, this is what Jesus has done for me and here's what he can do for you. So be bold in your faith. Find those moments. Ask God to reveal them to you. Have these moments in your life to share Jesus with the people that you interact with. John and Peter, they have this chance to heal this beggar. Stephen is given this opportunity to share to the Pharisees and onlookers. Philip is given this moment with the Ethiopians. When you get this moment to be bold, make the choice to be bold. And it will not always be easy. These guys are thrown in jail in this passage. Stephen is killed. And once uh, Stephen is killed, this guy Saul, who was there, goes on a rampage hunting down Christians from town to town. You're going to meet resistance. Not everyone is going to respond to your story with enthusiasm. Not everybody you invite to church is going to say yes. But some people will. And these men that we read about in Acts believed that that was enough to risk their lives for let us be bold as they were bold. The next thing is this, don't hold back. Don't hold back. Don't hold back in your boldness of faith. Don't hold back in serving others. Don't hold back on the story of Jesus. Don't hold back on what you give. Look at this passage again at the end of Acts 4, and then we're going to go into the one following. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the... Th- But Peter said, Ananias, and it's implied here, and it's here in the Greek language, and you need to understand that he didn't just only bring a part. He brought a part and claimed it was a whole. He held back for himself while telling everyone around him, I'm doing what Barnabas did and giving up so much for the kingdom. Peter said, Ananias Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Long story short, the exact same thing happens a few verses later to his wife. It's an intense story, but it's in the story of the formation of the church for a very important reason, because this is a, a contrasting view of what the church looks like when it's healthy versus what it looks like when it's unhealthy. The two hearts with which we serve the church. I wish that this was a really difficult to relate to and understand passage of Scripture. But a follower of Christ who is more out to build their image, their name, their prominence, their position, their reputation than that of the church is a story I've heard too many times. And here, we are given these back-to-back stories of Barnabas and then Ananias and Sapphira. The church living in community and sharing with one another and giving openly and honestly to one another. And then we see these two who would keep it for themselves and lie about what they have done in order to build up their own kingdom. We see these things back-to-back because the writer of Acts is warning us of this possibility and potential within the church. When there is something growing and successful and moving, there will always be somebody who wants to capitalize on it. And it is our role as the church To not hold back things for ourselves and do it in our name and do it because of me and to build up my brand and do my thing and make sure that people saw that I did this or knew that I did that so that I could become great. But so that our hearts would be like the heart of Jesus and give to others without ever expecting anything in return. This is what the church is called to be. Healthy looks like honesty, vulnerability. People truly caring for one another and allowing others to care for them. People serving selflessly. We learn about Barnabas selling his land and giving the money to the church so that the work of the church can continue. Barnabas is given this name, encourager, because his heart is so pure in what he does. And then we see unhealthy. And unhealthy looks like dishonesty. Holding back for myself trying to look like somebody that I am not, posturing to get people's attention, holding back from God what was his in the first place. I think it's important to note the heart here. Because Ananias and later his wife perish, not because they didn't give God their money. Peter calls them out on that. He's like, this was your land, bro. You didn't didn't have to sell it. And then when you sold it, it was your money. You could have kept some and you could have given just the tithe of it. That was your choice to make. Your sin is not what you, just that you kept some for yourself. Your sin is that you tried to lie to God about it. And lie to his people about it in the process. They wanted the praise they saw Barnabas get from being sacrificial. And so they lied. We cannot be a church that is built on these things. We have to be a church that is built on honesty, vulnerability, selflessness, and care for others. It's my belief in regard to money that all that I have comes from God. In obedience to his commands, I return 10% as the first part of my budget. And after that, I steward it wisely. From that 90%, I may feel the call to provide for somebody in need or to give to something like a legacy offering or or a charity, and that's great to do. But I don't do it so that people would see me doing it. I do it to help others, to build the church, to honor God. And the second that my heart shifts, it would be better for me to hold on to that money than to give it for the wrong reasons or to lie about it. Third thing is this, find your place. Find your place. Find your place in the church. Acts chapter six paints such an important picture of the church. Paul would go on to call the church a body. He he would talk about how we all are different body parts serving a different purpose, pieced together so that we might have unity and so that the kingdom might flourish. The apostles were called to one area of ministry, but they knew that this other area, feeding widows and orphans, mattered way too much to just ignore. Instead of trying to do everything themselves, they found the ones whose gifting would be activated by this specific ministry. There are so many things that we need to do to operate as a healthy church. There is not a single person on planet earth who has all the gifting required to lead a healthy church. A healthy church requires each and every one of us activating the gifting that God placed inside of us and using it to serve our community, to build the church, to care for one another, to do all the things that we see in the book of Acts as a family, together. Some of us teach, preach, lead, Organized. Some of us are great at making people feel at home, making them feel wanted and seen. Some of us are gifted with the sight to see the needs and to care for others, to find the ones who might fall through the cracks, to remember how they could be served. Some of us are prayer warriors, would spend hours on our knees on behalf of others. Some of us are are gifted with kids. We have the ability to see the next generation's potential and cultivate it within them. Some of us have a passion for what happens in the rooms of small groups, the vulnerability there. Some of you know how to lead in those spaces, how to call others to moments of vulnerability in those spaces. Some of you are gifted at connecting people and bringing people together. Some of you are great movers. You move people one step forward on their journey closer to Christ. You are disciple makers. You are gifted at helping somebody grow. Some of you are great stewards. You know exactly why uh, God has gifted you in the way that he has and how to leverage it for the kingdom of God. There are so many gifts represented within the church. I believe Those gifts were wired into you when God was creating you. When he was forming you in your mother's womb, he was putting into you the gifts that he would activate inside of you now. That the passions you've had, the things you've been excited about all your life, the the things that have gotten you talking, that have gotten you going, the, the things that get you motivated to move. They're not accidents, they're not personality clicks, they're not they're not obsessions on accident. God wired this passion, these gifts, these talents into you for the use of growing the kingdom of God. They haven't been built to build your platform. If you've got the gift of leadership, it is not so that God could, so that you could be great. It is not so that you could have people look to you and and love you and worship you. That is not why God gave you that gift. If you have the gift of hospitality, it's not so that you could have more friends than anybody else and look around and say, Look at all the people I have. If God gave you the gift of stewardship, it is not so that you could make yourself great and, and rich and collect and keep and build all for yourself God has given you each of these giftings to build the kingdom of God and I know that the enemy wants us to believe that the only way we can be happy is to use these gifts to build ourselves but there is plenty of evidence in the people you know and maybe in your own heart to know that that is not true the more I build myself the emptier I get but when I take those gifts and invest them into the kingdom of God into what He is doing, what his, what his church is doing, into the movements of the Holy Spirit, when I sow what has been invested in me into His kingdom, I will find greater satisfaction than I ever could on my own because now I am doing what I was born, what I was made to do. Those disciples saw these needs and knew there was no way that they could meet them on their own that there was a bigger movement happening here. And so they found those who were gifted and called to serve in this way. And here in Acts 6, they built out the structure of the church that we still use today. It's not about what I can do. It's not about what these people on the stage can do. It's about what we can do, church. Find your place. If you've been a part of this church for a while and and you've not yet found your place, I need to encourage you that God has called you into this space, not just to observe the kingdom, but to take part in building the kingdom. That God has brought you into this church, not just to be... Uh, 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 A spectator in it, but to be a participant in it. That God has called you and gifted you to use those gifts to build the church and together as the church to transform and change the city that we are planted in. Use your gifts. Find your place. So a call to action, if that's you today, would be to do something about it. Find your place. You can go to step one today, right after service, and come in there. Go see them at the step one table and let us have a fill out a connect card and get a little bit of information from you. I will share the vision of our church back in step one, and then we will find you, we'll help you discover your purpose and, and engage you in the life of the church so that you can make a difference. It's time. It's time to do what the church has always done: to find your position, to find your place. Place and to move in the local church if you're in here today and you are you haven't got a relationship with Jesus yet and maybe some of the things that have kept you from doing that have been the Ananias and the Sapphira's of the world maybe you've just encountered too many people who were doing it for the wrong reasons maybe you didn't understand how the church was made to operate maybe you served with people and people can be messy and it hurts you in some way. Maybe you're in here and you just didn't know the goodness that awaited you in the kingdom of God, the peace, the satisfaction, the joy. Maybe you have been searching your whole life to be a part of something that mattered and you came in here today and I believe you found it. And if that's you today, then beginning this journey starts with one relationship, a relationship with Jesus. The choice to follow him and be his disciple and to learn how to be with him and be like him and do what he does. And if that's you, then you begin with just a prayer. Every head bowed, every eye closed, just pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for trying to do this on my own for so long. Forgive me for every mistake I made along the way. I believe in you. I believe that you are who you said you are. I believe you made me with a purpose in mind. And I want to know what that purpose is. So all that I am from this day on, I am yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.